you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who are sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. We begin with the very latest, particularly on the Omicron variant, which uh, is so uh, contagious that we're seeing emergency rooms rapidly filling up. Fortunately, people not as seriously ill on average than we saw from the Delta or previous variants, but just the number of people that are descending on hospitals creating some very serious staffing problems, particularly with many hospitals seeing their employees having to call in sick because of COVID-19. Joining us is Dr. Timothy Brewer, epidemiologist and professor of medicine at the UCLA's Fielding School of Public Health. Dr. Brewer, very Good morning to you. Good morning, Larry. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. Great to have you with us. Let's start, first of all, L.A. County reporting our highest death toll in uh, four months. Nonetheless, the good news is, despite that, that the Omicron variant appears to, on average, produce uh, lesser symptoms than the earlier variants. Your, Your thoughts about what we're learning about Omicron? So, so you're exactly right, Larry, but if the numbers get high enough, it's still going to stress our healthcare system. So to put it in perspective, about this time last year, we were averaging about 21,000 cases of COVID-19 a day and almost 300 deaths a day. We had about 8,000 people in the hospital. Now we're looking at over 40,000 cases a day, about 40,500 cases a day. But we're seeing just under about 4,000 people hospitalized and, as you know, about, about 40 deaths. So we're not seeing the impact per case that we saw with Delta. But if these numbers continue to go up, it will stress our system. Now, I think we're seeing in New York uh, a plateauing of Omicron cases. Of course, we saw it blow through South Africa pretty quickly. Um, what are the odds that that's what's going to happen here in Southern California, that we're, we've got to endure this large number of cases, but, but in a few weeks here, we might see this decline as quickly as it ramped up? So that's certainly what everybody is hoping for. And based on what happened with Delta last year, now is about the time when 
cases peaked and then it started to fall off. We are seeing some countries in Europe, the UK, Spain, and France in particular, where their case numbers are starting to drop too. At least in the US as a whole, unfortunately, our seven-day average is still creeping up. So whether we've quite hit that peak yet or not, I think we'll just have to wait and see. All right, we're at 866-893-KPECC for your questions for Dr. Brewer. You can also email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your first name and your location with your question. Appreciate it. I have a good friend, uh, Dr. Brewer, who has had something I've not heard about before. He had recovered from a case of COVID-19 just over a month ago only to get sick again, test positive once more for COVID-19 just a month after. Uh, And I was wondering if this might be a case where my friend had had the Delta variant in um, the pre-holiday infection, and now this time dealing with Omicron. Is that possible? So it's certainly possible. One of the things we know about Omicron is it does seem to have immune escape meaning it's capable of infecting people who have been infected with previous variants of SARS-CoV-2 or who've been been vaccinated. So that's one of the unfortunate parts about Omicron. What would have been interesting, Larry, would be to know if the he had had a negative test in between those two positive he tests had, or not. He had a negative PCR test between. Oh, okay. Because the other possibility is we do know some people can remain PCR positive for extended periods of time and certainly up as much as 90 days after they've resolved their symptoms. So the other possibility would have been it was just a continuing positive test, even though he was better. But if he had a negative test in between, that would suggest he was reinfected. And all of his symptoms, he had very mild the first time, and and then those mild symptoms went away. Now he's actually sicker this time around. Um, so fascinating, because I, I just had not heard of a case like this before. Yeah, no, it's certainly unfortunate that Omicron does seem to be able to infect people with some level of previous immunity. All the more reason to make sure that if you're eligible for a booster, you've gotten your booster. And if you haven't been vaccinated, uh, please go out and get vaccinated. All right. And this individual, by the way, is fully vaccinated and boosted as well. I welcome your questions. We're at 866-893-KPECC. You can also email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your first name and your location. President Biden announced that uh, federal medical teams will be deployed to help hospitals grappling with the COVID-19 surge. What are you seeing there at UCLA Medical Center, and and you expect that these um, federal reinforcements are going to help? So, so I can't speak for UCLA in particular. I was actually on service over the Christmas holidays, with covering the general infection service, not the COVID service. So, I'm not sure where our numbers are per se. What I can tell you in Los Angeles is that 
we're not anywhere near where we were this time last year, either in terms of hospitalizations or ICU beds. That having been said, our, all our hospitals are extremely busy, and there's there's no capacity to take on much in the way of extra patients if there were to be a big surge in in COVID cases. 866-893-KPECC. Janie in Irvine emailed to ask, uh, can we change the way PCR tests are processed given that we have a crisis on our hand? If we don't get some results back for several days, what good do they serve? I understand from friends in Germany and Bahrain, they receive PCR test results within a day. So, so there are actually different kinds of PCR tests, Jamie. So you're correct. There, there are amplification tests that will give you answers within hours, and there are lab-based tests that tend to take more time because they're usually batched and, and run, run together. Um, the unfortunate thing is the lab-based tests are probably the most accurate of all the tests available, but there are, there are PCR slash amplification tests that are available that can give you results within a, an hour or two. Jimmy in Long Beach says N95 and KN95 masks are are becoming harder to come by, but I've seen information about masks called PM2.5, and everything I've read about say they're also good, but it's unclear to me how they compare to KN95s and N95s. That's Jimmy in Long Beach wanting to know about these PM2.5s. So I'm not sure what the certification is for those who the certifying body is. So so an N95 mask means that it's been certified by the National Institute of Occupational Safety and, and Health, right, NIOSH. A KN95 mask is a mask that's actually certified by the Chinese government. That's not a a U.S.-based certification, and there are a variety of other masks by other governments as well. For example, a P1 mask would be equivalent as certified by the Brazilian government. So it would just depend on, on who's doing the certification for that particular mask, but that particle size is certainly a particle size that you would think would be relatively effective. We have Sarah in Santa Monica are there plans to add another booster? I got my booster shot in October. So when the effectiveness wanes, will I need to get another booster? Unclear. So what we'll have to see is what happens with Omicron and whether or not, in fact, the companies that are making the vaccines, in particular Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson, are going to alter the composition of of the antigen in the vaccine, whether or not it makes sense to to update it rather than to continue to boost with the the Wuhan version. The other thing I would love to see, which we haven't seen a lot of data on, is memory B cells and T cell immunity, because those are what really protect you against serious disease, hospitalization, and death. And in general, those have tend to be more preserved than the neutralizing antibodies, which are really helpful in protecting against breakthrough infection. 
So you've seen, uh, I'm sure, in, in Israel where they've given fourth doses, particularly to older Israelis, um, I think it was after four months after the initial booster shot. Is that something you think the U.S. should consider? Well, I, I think we certainly should be looking at what's happening with immunity over time. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And if it does look like immunity is waning, I think the real question is, does it make sense to continue to boost with the same vaccine that we're currently using? Or given that these vaccines are all built on essentially a plug-and-play technology where you can swap antigens out, it takes about three months to to ramp up a new version of the vaccine, at least the mRNA vaccines, maybe it would make sense to actually update the vaccines to the variants that are circulating now. And if you're going to boost, boost with those rather than the original version of the vaccines. Now, are they doing that with Omicron? Because we heard so much, of course, about the mRNA manufacturers doing that with Delta. And I haven't heard an update on that. And and then are they doing that, to your knowledge, with Omicron? I, I haven't heard anything either, Larry. I, I did hear the Pfizer CEO talk uh, late last year about they would be able to do that in about three months time. But whether they're actually proceeding with that or not, I don't I don't know. 866-893-KPECC or email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your location and first name. Glenn in Playa del Rey says, over the weekend, I saw that there was a variant uh, with elements of both Delta and Omicron. It was a study out of the University of Cyprus, but I haven't heard anything about it since. Glenn wonders, uh, Dr. Brewer, if you've heard anything about this. I have not. Glenn, what you have to realize is for a variant to be successful, it has to outcompete everything that's already out there. And there, there are essentially two ways for a variant to do that. One is it can be more transmissible. So alpha was more transmissible than what came before it, and delta was more transmissible than alpha. Or the second is the variant is capable of infecting people who are protected from other variants or immune escape. Unfortunately, Omicron was able to do both, right? So it was both more transmissible and it was able to cause infection in people who seem to be protected against early, earlier variants. Now, for a new variant to take over from Omicron, it's essentially going to have to outcompete Omicron in one or both of those ways. Layla in Mission Viejo says, over the holidays, my whole family got COVID. My husband, parents, and siblings, I was the only one not to get it. Any reason why? Um, no particular reason. So, so. The risk of infection is almost never 100%. If you, if you look at household studies, so there's a, a preprint out of um, Denmark now where they looked at household contacts and secondary case rates with Omicron and compared that with Delta. Under Delta, about 20% of household contacts were becoming secondarily infected Omicron. Um, under Omicron, it was 31%. So not a big difference. So not everybody who's exposed will get infected. Um, unfortunately, your family was above that 
20 to 30%, but fortunately for you, you were able to to not get infected. Hopefully you're vaccinated and continuing to wear your mask and do those other good things. Dr. Brewer, you remember early on in the pandemic, it, it appeared people with type O blood, um, that that had some sort of a protective element. Do you know if that's held up? I, I don't. I, I do remember our discussions about that, but I have not looked into that recently, but that'll give me some homework to do later today. And I'm also, while you're at that, if you wouldn't (laughs) mind looking up the gender breakdown, because one of the things we saw, and this would be more relevant, of course, when people were getting much sicker with the previous uh, variants, but uh, that men appeared on average to have the tougher go when they got COVID than women did. And I wonder if, if we're still seeing that kind of gender breakdown. So in general, men are still getting um, hospitalized at higher rates than than women. The in, the infection rates haven't been varying too much um, in terms of the infection rates are fairly similar, but men tend to more likely be hospitalized or to die than 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 women up until. Um, I haven't seen anything for Omicron, so I don't know if that's changed under Omicron or not. And thankfully, of course, it's a smaller percentage of people uh, getting ill who who are getting seriously ill with with Omicron. 866-893-KPECC. Just a reminder that when you ask your question, please, please make sure it's one that's going to be applicable to more than just yourself or the family member for whom you're asking the question. If it's something that's highly specific to you based on a particular circumstance, please check with your health care provider that's really the better way for you to get that kind of customized answer than in this segment. And we remind you, if you've missed any of the segment to this point or you miss a whole day's worth of our COVID update, it's available as a podcast. Tens of thousands of people have subscribed already. You can get it wherever you get your audio or at kpcc.org. It's titled COVID in L.A., COVID in L.A., the podcast. Lily in Los Angeles says, I've got a 12-year-old daughter. She received her second vaccination mid-July of 2021. Can I go ahead and get her a booster now? So um, she is now eligible to get the Pfizer booster. So the Pfizer is the only vaccine that has been authorized for boosting in, in that age group. But but yes. And, and Larry, um, I did have a chance to look during the break. So... Um, Men are still dying at a higher rate, both in California and the country as a whole compared with women. So whereas women account for or females account for 51 percent of the cases, they're only 41 percent of the deaths in in California. So that hasn't changed. Thank you for for sharing that. And if you ever decide you've had enough of medicine, we have a producer position open on the show. We'd love to have you come and and do that rapid research. That's a skill set that we we value a great deal here. Dr. Timothy Brewer joining us on AirTalk. We have a similar question to Lily's from Joseph, who emailed us. I have a 12-year-old son, received his second vaccine shot in June. His school sent an email encouraging students to get a booster, but 
after making two separate appointments at two separate pharmacies, they uh, turned me away, saying their corporate policy wasn't updated for boosters for his age range. So Joseph is is, is frustrated, wondering where can he get his 12-year-old a booster? So I, I would suggest one of two places. One is to reach out to your primary health care provider, your pediatrician or family medicine doctor to see if he or she can help arrange that. And the other is the myturn.gov.ca.gov uh, website that the state of California set up for, for getting vaccinated. I think both of those might be good resources to try to address this. All right. Chris emailed us. I remind you, please include your location if you email us. Um, uh, Chris said, if someone in a family tests positive, but without much ability to fully quarantine alone, how should families handle that? Masks, cleaning and disinfecting? Chris wants to know if, if there just isn't, I'm assuming that where they live just cannot accommodate that kind of isolation. Sure. So if you if you can't isolate someone in their own room, ideally with their their own washroom facilities, then what I would recommend is a couple of things. One is try to keep your physical distancing as much as possible. Make sure that who's ever assisting in the care of that person, if they need assistance, is wearing an N95 mask uh, and that it's been properly fit. And the way you can um, check the fit a little bit is put the mask on, put your hands over the front of the mask, just gently blow into the mask. It should puff up a little bit and no air leak around the edges and then gently inhale in the mask and the mask should suck in a little bit again with no leak around the edges. So just a little check you can do to make sure that your N95 mask is well fitting well. Make sure that you're washing your hands every time you have contact with the person uh, before, before and after. And just try to minimize contact as much as possible till they're better. All right. Very good. 866-893-KPCC. Peter in Pasadena asks, excuse me, will a nucleocapsid antibody test show if someone has ever had COVID or if they're experiencing long-haul symptoms? So it will demonstrate that they've had COVID or not. So that that's a sign of having previous infection as opposed to to vaccination. Remember, the vaccines only contain the spike protein. So the antibodies generated by vaccines will be against the spike protein, not against the nucleocapsid antigen. So if you have an antibody against that antigen, you've been you've been infected. It will not tell you whether or not you have long COVID. All right. 866-893-KPECC. Uh, Catherine Nervine says there was a CDC article on mask effectiveness, and it stated a high-quality cloth mask placed over a surgical mask provides similar protection to N95 or KN95. Catherine wondering, can you confirm that or, or do you question that? No. So there are two components to a mask. One is the material. What is the mask made of and how easy is it for things to move in and out of the mask? And the second is the fit. And so anything that gives you a denser material or a better fit will improve the effectiveness of the mask. And 
wearing a cloth and surgical mask uh, will probably do both of those things. So there's there's no reason why you couldn't make a highly effective cloth mask. It just depends on the material, how porous is it, and how good of a how well of a fit can you get with the mask. Mandy in Los Angeles emailed, "How safe is it under the new California guidelines for healthcare workers to provide patient care beyond the job?" after testing positive? So I tend to disagree with the Department of Public Health on that one. I would not like to see positive infected healthcare workers in the hospital, if at all possible. If you if you look at the guidelines from the CDC, that's actually the recommendation under a crisis situation. So that's, that's the last resort. So the last resort is when you're so stretched and you don't have enough healthcare workers, you're letting infected healthcare workers go in wearing personal protective equipment. Um, kind of hard to believe we're at that point, given that in the state as a whole right now, you know, our, our hospitalization rates are much lower than what they were at the peaks this time last year. So, so in the state as a whole, we're running about 12,000 uh, to 12,500 hospitalizations. This time last year, we were over 20,000. Hard to believe that we need to have infected healthcare workers going into the hospital right now. Well, and, and it's funny because L.A. County Public Health has seemed to be um, almost when you look across the country, the most extreme when it's come to their measures. In fact, they've taken heat for um, going further than other public health entities on restrictions. So I, I was surprised to see this degree of leniency with healthcare workers from a department that's kind of known for, for being tough. So, uh, I, again, I, I don't think this is the right position for this time right now. So here in the county, we're still under 4,000 hospitalized COVID patients. Uh, This time last year, we were averaging about 8,000. We have about 600 people or 550 people in ICUs. This time last year, we had um, 1,700 in ICU. So I don't think we're in a situation where we need to necessarily be thinking about allowing infected healthcare workers to go into the hospital. And remember, anybody in a hospital, a, a patient, is almost by definition high risk for serious disease. So this, these are the last groups of people you want to be exposing to SARS-CoV-2. Uh, we have Teresa in Woodland Hills who says, my son is in jail, so was only offered the J&J vaccine. He was told to get a booster after two months. This sounds soon to me, but but wondering. And uh, I do know, Dr. Brewer, that boosting after J&J is recommended sooner than it is with the mRNAs, isn't it? That's correct. And so two months would be right. And there is interesting data out of Europe looking at the combination of the AstraZeneca adenovirus vaccine then boosted by an mRNA vaccine. And those individuals actually had better immune responses than people who got two mRNA vaccines. Whether that will be true for Johnson & Johnson and an mRNA boost would be interesting to see. But I, I would recommend 
recommend that um, anyone who got Johnson & Johnson more than two months ago get boosted and get boosted with an mRNA vaccine. All right. And especially with their son in a congregate living setting like a jail, it's, of course, very important to be protected. We've had so many large scale outbreaks of covid within jails and prisons in the U.S. and other congregate settings, uh, nursing homes and the like. Um, Ivy and Altadena emailed, when's the best time to test after exposure? My granddaughter and son were in close contact uh, for three days with someone who tested positive for COVID two days after that contact, the person's asymptomatic. What, what is that timeline, doctor? Sure. So um, the CDC actually recommends testing twice, once initially after exposure and then after five days. It usually takes a couple of days for the virus to replicate enough to to get to a point where it could be detected by a test. So so that first test is almost always going to be negative if that's when infection is going to occur. But the majority of people will have a positive test by five days. So so that five day window is a is a good time to either do your first test or repeat the test after your exposure if you haven't had one before. 866-893-KPECC. Nikki in Ladera Ranch emailed, I'm pregnant and taking care of my 15-year-old who's vaxxed but very sick with COVID. If at some point I also test positive and he is still sick, is it okay to stop quarantining from each other? Is there still a risk to me if I'm not sick or just mildly sick? So, so hopefully you're vaccinated because um, pregnant women are at increased risk for complications from COVID disease, both for themselves, so they have higher risks of hospitalization and serious outcomes, and also for their, their, their fetus, so there's an increased risk of premature delivery, for example. Um, in terms of the exposures, it it, if he's symptomatic, the question is, is he still contagious? And and most transmission, if it's going to occur, will occur within the first six days of symptoms. So there are studies to show that it's very unusual to transmit after six days. So if you're more than six days out from when he got symptomatic, your risk of getting it is probably much, much lower. But, but your end of your exposure period won't start until uh, until his symptoms are improving, actually. Speaking of pregnancy, a study uh, looking across the entire population of Scotland found pregnant women who had not been vaccinated against COVID-19 and who caught the disease were much more likely to suffer severe complications for themselves and for their infants than those who had been vaccinated and got COVID, um, and uh, you know we we continue to see lower rates of vaccination among pregnant women than the general population. Doctor Brewer, your thoughts on on that study and concerns about unvaccinated pregnant women getting COVID? So, so I haven't had a chance to read the study. I did have a chance to look quickly at the the abstract, but it's it's consistent with data that we know from the United States as well. So our, our hospitalization, 
hospitalization rates have been two to three times higher in pregnant women compared with women of similar age who are not pregnant when they get COVID-19. I, I think the increased risk of, of fetal demise is new. That's not something that particularly had come out before. So I'm very much interested in reading that study to to see what it says and to look at the data. But But the bottom line is every pregnant woman and every woman and man for that matter should be vaccinated, should be boosted if they're eligible for a booster. And we do need to get those those rates up in our pregnant women. There is uh, no safety concerns with these vaccines in pregnancy. A number of studies now published to show they do not increase the risk of miscarriage or fetal demise or, or have any particular problems associated with being pregnant. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Brewer, for being with us again and providing your expertise and, of course, your time. I really look forward to talking with you again soon, and stay well, sir. Thank you for having me. Epidemiologist and UCLA School of Public Health professor Dr. Timothy Brewer. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.